Welcome to the teaching ministry of Reverend JFK Mensah, a seasoned Bible teacher with over 40 years of ministry experience. He is a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, and an international conference speaker. He is passionate about making Christ-like disciples worldwide. JFK Mensah is the General Overseer of Great Commission Church International. May you be transformed as you listen to the Word of God. The first thing we want uh, Apostle to respond to is what really is the kingdom of God. And also just to add to it that uh, we see in the Bible that the use of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Can you help us? What is the difference? Can you help us understand both in the Gospels and in the Pauline letters, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Uh, when we say kingdom, we mean necessarily that there is a king. And that king has a geographical area where his rule, his will, his power and authority is respected and obeyed. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we mean everywhere that God rules, his will prevails. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 is the clearest definition, the Lord's Prayer. It says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will rules. is absolute. On earth, every home, every church, every town where the will of God, the rule of God is first, then that is the kingdom of God. God is ruling there. Now, what is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Uh, very briefly, they can be used synonymously. They are the same. What is the argument? Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 6 verse 20 says, Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So it's used interchangeably. In the same way, Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. If anybody can read it for us, it's very clear. Matthew 19, 23 
and 24. Jesus uses both terms interchangeably. Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. 19. Yes, verse 23 and 24. 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 24. Again I tell you, it is easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So even Jesus uses kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, interchangeably. If you can still read for us Mark chapter 10, this time verse 24 and 25, you will see that the same thing is there. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to the children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And finally, Luke 18, 24 and 25. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, we see Matthew using kingdom of heaven more often than kingdom of God because the Matthew gospel was addressed to the Jews. And the Jews, because they know the commandment that you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, they don't normally want to call God, God, God. So they prefer to say heaven. So Matthew uses kingdom of heaven more. But Mark and Luke freely use kingdom of God. So if you are reading by the scriptures, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, they mean the same thing. Thank you. The next question we want to ask is what it means to establish the kingdom of God in our homes or in the Christian home and why it is crucial, why it is important for us as pastors, as ministers, as shepherds, as Christian leaders to establish the kingdom of God in our Christian homes. So from what we have seen in the Matthew 6.10, establishing the kingdom of God in a Christian's home is making sure that the will of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the leadership of the Holy Spirit is First and foremost in the home. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Romans 14.17 says, The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace 
in the Holy Spirit. So, to seek to establish God's rule, God's will, the Lordship of Jesus, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the home brings the kingdom of God into your home. It means God is king in your home. Jesus is Lord in your home. And the Holy Spirit is leader and guide in your home. Why is it critical? Many reasons. The first is that all people, both Christians and non-Christians, are looking at the Christian's home as a model. Because they think you are closest to God, they can't see God. So what they see you do and in your house is what they interpret as the will of God. Number two, definitely what you do in your home when you establish God's kingdom, it it brings God into your team and brings the blessing of God to the family because his will is being done. His rule prevails. Therefore, his blessings fall on the house. And the reverse too is true. If you are doing things contrary to him, Romans 2.24 says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And thirdly, we all need to understand that the believer is the first target of Satan. And the Christian leader, the pastor's family and home, is number one on the hit list of Satan. You see, because Jesus himself told us, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So Satan knows that if he can hit the shepherd's family, then it affects the whole church. So it is critical for God's rule to prevail in the house of the minister. You can be sure, if the pastor is a man, the pastor's wife is the church's standard for women. The way she talks, the way she dresses, the way she lives, she is the example. The pastor's children become the model for parenting, raising up your children. The pastor's home is critical in Christianity. And even for the sake of passing on the faith to the next generation, the kingdom of God must be established in the pastor's home. Those are a few of the important ones. Our next question is that we want you to share with us uh, for the 43 years you have been in ministry as a pastor. What would you say are your the greatest challenges you have faced, I mean, in relation to your family. Okay. I pastored for a year before I was ordained. So my ordination is 42 years, and the one year pre-ordination makes it the 43. So 
I can share with you freely that one of the toughest challenges we face as human beings is the pastor and his family life. First of all, the demands of church ministry and church members competes with your family life. If a church member is sick and your own child is sick, the church expects you to rush to the church member and help rather than your family. Then you have people in the church who are needy and poor. They expect the pastor to come and help them. So financially, every wedding, every funeral and bereavement, the pastor is expected to show up and to help, to support. Even if you don't have anything, nobody really thinks about that. Then there is the expectation of the church from your wife and children. You are the one the church is hiring as a pastor. But unlike an accountant, when the accountant's wife may not know anything about mathematics and accounts, and the husband just goes to work and comes back and brings the top money. It's not so with the pastor. The pastor's wife is expected to be part of the pastor's work. She is also expected to love church members. She is expected to entertain visitors. She is expected to mourn with those who are mourning. She is expected to show up in church, all church programs. She is, and the pastor's children, when you do anything in school, at church, they say, you a pastor's child too doing this? You a pastor's child too doing this? So it's a pressure. Everything which happens in a pastor's house is supposed to be open to the whole church. People expect to know everything happening in the pastor's house and gossip about it freely because he is the pastor. And whenever there is a conflict, there is a challenge, a problem in the church, it lands in the pastor's house. And the pastor's wife and children are part of it because it's a pressure on the pastor and they have to hear. Now, it makes it such that the pastor has very little time for himself, very little time for the wife and children, and his feelings also go out to church members. So he shares the church in his heart with his wife and children. It can become a lot of pressure. Monday to Monday, he is involved in the church life. And he is to be an example. And his wife is to be an example. And when you balance that against First Timothy chapter 3, Verse 1 to 12, which requires that 
if a man cannot lead his house, his wife and children properly, he does not qualify to be a church leader or a pastor. And Titus chapter 1 verse 5 to 7 also says the same thing. First Peter chapter 5 verse 1 to 4. It makes it such that the pastor is seriously challenged. And it explains why a lot of pastors have burned out. You know, their families come out, their children are not anything to write home about, and you name it. So those are the challenges. And sometimes, you know, I remember when I was in the Volta region, I was the regional pastor. When I go to a town, immediately the church members see me, they go to church and start drumming so that I will preach to them before I go. So you can imagine one trip when I'm going from Bokwe to Accra, I have to stop in like six, eight places on the way and meet church members and then the visitors to our home. Some people just come and stay without telling you in advance. Some come, our children complain that, I remember one of the children praying that, Lord, as for this food, let no visitor come so that we can have a decent meal. Because when the visitors come, we smile and give the children's food to the visitor. Because if you don't do that, your your name will be all over the church that you are a very selfish pastor and pastor's wife. Anyway, those are some of the challenges I can remember from the top of my head. Thank you. Thank you very much, Apostle. Uh, now, let's want to get to one of the important questions. How can the church leader, the pastor, the shepherd practically establish God's kingdom in his or her home? Okay. Uh, it's a very tough question. I think from talking with my fellow pastors, the first thing we all talk about is grace. The grace of God. It's not so much your skill as much as the fact that our sufficiency is from God. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16. So these are the ones which have worked for me. And I want to throw them out for you to consider. Number one, the Bible. The Bible in the home. Reading the Bible day and night in the home brings God to the home. It does four main things. Number one, you get to know the mind and heart of God as a family. Number two, it unites you daily 
with the family. You are able to meet your wife and children around the Bible and prayer daily. Number three, it builds conscience into your children, your wife, and yourself. Because you are reading the Bible. And then number four is it helps you answer questions, current questions, and discuss difficult topics like rape, like sexual issues, and so on, that the the children might want to learn from their peers, the Bible answers that for all of you. And the means of this difficult 21st century, Bible is critical for bringing the kingdom of God into the house. Two, prayer. Prayer. Prayer is critical because there are times when the children and your wife, they see your faith. When you pray for something and God answers, they learn to trust God for themselves as God answers prayer. In addition to that, more and more each of your wife and children, when prayer is answered, their faith grows they learn how to pray for themselves and carry that out when you are not there yourself. Now, that brings me to number three, disciple making in the home. One-on-one and small group disciple making in the home is critical because Jesus commanded us in the Matthew 28, 19, that we should go and make disciples of all nations. So your first place to test disciple making is your home, your wife and children. It is because as you do that and disciple them, they grow up with a faith and obedience which can show that godliness has come to your home. There are difficult character issues that without discipling, you can never uh, conquer. You may be reading the Bible, you may be praying, but it is the one-on-one discipling and small group discipling that can work on the character of the individual children and even your wife and equip them to be able to disciple other people. It is critical. Well, for now, the fourth I would like to put out there as something which has really helped me over the years is fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. Uh, It may sound too super spiritual, but there are times your wife does something 
you want to rebuke her. And the Holy Spirit says, no, stop. Don't do that now. Your children do something. You want to spank them. And the Holy Spirit said, no. There are times too, they do something. You don't want to take it seriously. But the Holy Spirit is pointing out that, no, no, no. Act on this immediately. And that is of a great help. Probably one of the graces God has given me personally is that my wife became part of my ministry. So wherever I'm going, my wife goes with me. And because of that, I I have time for my wife because she is part of ministry with me. So wherever we are going, we can talk. I can't remember the number of hotels and uh, restaurants and places we have slept together uh, in. We have traveled together. We talk about anything, discuss anything when we are moving together because she's part of the ministry with me. We And when the children saw it, they also joined. So we added the children to, to our ministry. So we go together. They listen to me preach. We discuss the sermons. We talk about other things. And we are together most of the time so that I don't neglect them. Thank you. Yes. Apostle, thank you very much. Uh, closely uh, following uh, the answer is 21st century uh, we are, many shepherds, pastors, leaders, and their spouses have different paths. A pastor married to a banker, a pastor married to someone who works in public service, and they are going different directions almost every time. Uh, what would you advise? How do we draw the spouses and the rest of the family into the ministry? How do you draw them into the ministry so they understand what uh, we do and they, they go with us? And also, again, in discipling the family at the home, how do we overcome the issue of familiarity in discipling the family? How do we do this to this? Okay. <clears throat> yes, I want to answer the second question first. I wish my children were online to take it up for me. Uh, familiarity in the discipling, uh, it comes <clears throat> when the children don't respect you and when your wife does not respect you. I I want to plead with every uh, pastor or Christian leader and Christian man to deliberately go out of your way to help your wife and children to trust you and to respect you. This means there are no go areas for you. For example, my wife knows that 
there is no other woman or girl in my life. I am very open to her. Two, all the money, I, my salary, I pass on freely to her so that she knows what is coming in and what should be done with the money. Then also, I try very much to be honest with her. Now, I do this intentionally. There are some things I never quarrel with my wife about. The the color she chooses to paint our bedroom with or the hall. I don't interfere. There are many decisions I allow my wife to take because there are more important decisions where when I put down my foot that no, she knows I allow her to take decisions on many other areas. So the areas which I come in, those areas must be A1. So I don't fight. I don't, there are many things I, I don't worry about. I, I can never remember criticizing my wife's food. We've been married now. This is our 40th year. I've never criticized her food. You see, because there are more important issues for us to handle. So if I, I sidetrack into that, so those are things which make familiarity come in. If your wife sees that you are not sober, then she can take chances. Then also the children. The challenge with the children is that they have been born into the church they go to church as pastor's kids from age zero. So a time comes when church issues become so commonplace that like the children of Eli, they, they don't mind the sacrifices. They, they, they flaunt everything. So, well, my children will have to speak for themselves. But I try my best to model Christian life. There are things I don't do as a Christian in my house. I try not to tell small, small lies. I get angry, but I try not to to get out of control with my anger. Uh, what I mean, those things which a Christian should not do, I, I try to model the Christian life so that they won't take me for granted. So those are things I, I can say about the familiarity and in the discipling and training of the, the family. Yes. Okay. The, the other question has to do with how you draw the rest of the family into the vision because we have heard many uh, spouses say, you you have been called by God. It's not me. The children say, it's our father or our mother who have been called. So yes. Uh, yes. Let, allow us to live our own life. Thank you. Thank you. I forgot about that. Please. 
before you marry as a pastor, a Christian leader, a minister, it is important to discuss these things with your spouse. Discuss your vision and your goals with your spouse before you enter the marriage. So, for example, when we went for honeymoon, we had a three-day fast. One of the things we told God was, if you will give us children who will disgrace your name, we prefer not to have any children at all. Two, I mean, our house will be a house of prayer and worship. Then I told my wife that I have been called to world evangelism. So that is what I, I live and die for. It is best to share the vision with your wife before the marriage. Then whether she is a banker, she is a nurse, she is a, a, an accountant, she knows what she is entering into and she can adjust herself so that she can be part of the vision. Two, if you get married as ordinary Christians before God calls you into Christian leadership, into pastoral leadership, then you have a more difficult case. It means you now have to pray fully, bring your wife and children into the vision. I remember I vowed to go to Mauritania before I got married. So when the opportunity came to go, I went to Mauritania and came back and showed my wife the pictures. And she said, no, I'm not going. You vowed. You can go and pay your vows. I will stay with the children in Ghana and you go and come. But I was just praying. And then my sister, the doctor, she resigned from her work and came so that we will go to Mauritania together. Look at that. And when my wife saw that, she entered a seven-day fast to ask God, shall I go or shall I not go? And she said, the Lord told her to take three of the kids and go with me so that we can leave two of them behind. That's how God solved my problem for me. So my wife went with me to the mission field. So I agree that for your wife to buy into your vision is critical. But do it before entering the marriage. If as I speak, you haven't done it, please pray about it and tell your wife, I want to see you. I want us to meet. And when you meet, talk about what God has put on your heart, God's call on your life the gifts and abilities he has given you and ask her and 
as she comes out with hers, her vision, you can see how the two can work together. And that will give you peace in your home. Uh, that's what I can say for now. Yes. Thanks so much, Apostle. God bless you. Uh, brethren, I want to just put the last questions uh, from this side so that we can open the floor for other questions. Please, you can type into the chat box or uh, when it is time after this last one, we'll give you an opportunity to speak. Thank you. Apostle, please, what would you say is the role of the, the leader's family or the pastor's family in the church and in the community at large? What is the role of the pastor's family in the church or in the community at large? Okay. That is a very important question. The pastor's family serves as the example and model of the pastor's Christian leadership ability. That's First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, if a, a pastor cannot lead his own house, then what business has he to lead the church of God? If your children and your wife are not submissive to the word of God, you lack the moral right to discipline the church to rebuke the church and to correct the church because your own children, your own wife, they are going against what the Bible says. This is why we talk about the, bringing the kingdom of God into your home. So, they are critical. People copy you. People copy the pastor's family. People look upon you as examples and models. And it's, it is tough. But at the same time, I want to appeal to church members that one, they need to pray for the pastor and his family. Daily. That's First Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 to four. Two, they need to empathize with the pastor and his family. Some pressures from the church members onto the pastor and the pastor's family are unreasonable. It makes it such that, you know, if the pastor's wife is a nurse, but you expect her to be at every church Function. How can she handle it? If the pastor's children are going to school, but you expect them to present themselves at every church function, the pressure becomes too much. So, financially, socially, and spiritually, 
the church community must be a support for the pastor's family. They are also human beings. Sometimes they feel lonely and they need people from the church to understand them and give them space. You know, there are certain times it is not healthy to call your pastor because it puts extra pressure on him. So he has no family life. And you can see, I sympathize with people like uh, Samuel. He himself was very correct. But look at his children. Look at David. He was excellent in leadership outside his home. But look at the home. First Kings 1, 6 says, Adonijah, his father never told him, why are you doing this? So, my counsel is the community, the pastors or the church community has to rise up to see their responsibility to, as it were, support the pastor, the Christian leadership, and people who are in position of authority to make sure that they also thrive in order to give to the church. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Apostle. Let me just take these two in the chat box, then we can open the lines for other questions. He says that how do you navigate the situation where each spouse is very used to doing their own quiet time Bible reading and prayer, such that one of them is resistant to doing it together? Then the second question is that if the wife is the one who is the pastor, what must she do differently, especially when she is supposed to be submitting to her husband at home? Can the dual role be balanced? Okay. Uh, thank you. We normally advise three kinds of devotion. Personal devotion, family devotion, and spousal devotion. The, you do your personal quiet time, you have the family devotion, and then as a couple, the two of you should find time to do your devotions. So, please, none of them can be traded for the other. Because the family that prays together stays together. So, if you do your quiet time and so you don't want to come for the family one, you are tearing the family apart. And if you do the family and you don't do the personal, personal spiritual growth too is limited. And if you do the personal and family, but as a couple, husband and wife, you don't have your devotions and prayer time together, Satan will scatter you. Remember First Peter 3, 7. He says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge and treat them as weaker vessels with honor. 
lest your prayers be hindered. So that is that one. Now, the second question, if the pastor happens to be the the woman. Yes. Three things. Number one, before entering the ministry, it is important to sit down with your husband and explain that I am supposed to submit to you as a wife, but I am a pastor or I'm entering the ministry. Let's draw the lines of what you expect and what I can give. Because if you don't have this critical meeting, your husband will always expect a submission beyond the limits of your pastoral duties. And it, it will bring a fight. So please sit down. Now, you ask me what if you were a pastor, female pastor, before you got married. I think the same sitting down is important. And if you can bring the ground rules and put them down, then on the way, if there is a difficulty, you can come back and look again at the agreement and try to amend it. The roles which should change should be watched. So I, I think that is the most important. It is good if you think it will be confusing to even write them down so that you can refer to them. But above all, pray. I think sometimes the husbands who are demanding, even though you are a female pastor, prayer can solve the problem with them. As you pray, God will work on their hearts. Amen. Amen. Hello. Hi. Hi, so my name is Barbara, and I have a few questions. Great. So, um, my, me and my sister, we are like pastor's children, and I know people expect us to leave the best of ourselves, but then I also like, I realized lately when we like do stuff, people are always complaining about how we should dress, what we should do, and how we should basically live our lives. And so then the question is that as pastors' children, if we pierce our nose, is it like wrong? Uh, Would you like me to be honest with you? Yes. Okay. Uh, We have just closed the Easter season. On the cross, Jesus bought us. He bought our body. He bought our soul. He bought our spirit. That's First Corinthians chapter 6, 
verses 19 and 20. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. So we have been bought with a price. That is the blood of Jesus. So we should no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us. Therefore, we don't do anything on our body except by his express permission. This means tattoos, piercings of ears and eyelids and lips and parts of the body. It means the kinds of things we put on our bodies as dresses and everything that has to do with things that reflect on him. Our body is the temple, the permanent dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So because of that, he wants us to present our bodies. This is in Romans 12 verse 1. To present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. So please, everybody else can do what they like with their body. But the Christian's body belongs to the Lord and must be handled, stewarded with care. This is why you can't commit suicide as a child of God. You are not allowed to do those things with yourself. And this is not only for the pastor's kid. It's for all Christians all over the world. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes, I'm just wondering about, just wanted to stretch it a little. In some tribes, in case we are ears beyond what we do here in Accra or in Ghana or for, yeah, or in West Africa for that matter, <clears throat> some of them pierce their nose, their nose. And so it's a cultural thing. Um, I'm just wondering that, uh, would there be anything wrong with that if they were they were raised to learn that that is how they live and that is how beauty is defined? And again, if someone in West Africa either lived there just like Apostle lived in uh, is it Mauritania or wherever, and then he picks that idea of piercing their nose three times and brings it to West Africa, uh, would that necessarily create a problem because it's cultural isn't it thank you so much apostle okay thank you uh, this whole issue of culture is a tough one because not everything in our culture is bad and not everything in our culture is good 
So like shaking hands, it's, it's easy to see that when we shake hands, it's a warm fellowship. There's nothing wrong with it. But pouring libation is not so neutral. So if somebody has been raised up to pour libations because you were in the chief's house and you move and you become a born-again Christian, you need to examine the pouring of libation in the light of the Bible and ask yourself, is it proper? Our culture, Ghanaian culture and the chieftaincy and those things, we pour libation. But now I am a born-again Christian. I belong to Jesus. And I'm not the only person. There are Christians all over the world reading the same Bible. Should I continue pouring libation or should I not? So these things, uh, they make us, uh, Hebrews 5.14 says, solid food is for the mature. Those who have their senses exercised to distinguish between good and evil. So, yes, uh, you can be raised up in a culture which pierces the nose and the ears and even here in Ghanaian culture, there are people with tribal marks. But when you become born again, and you understand what tribal marks are. You don't want to put tribal marks on your children as, as a Christian. Because the tribal marks are offering the child to the idols your tribe serves. We actually asked somebody from Northern Ghana. He had three marks on his forehead as a tribal mark. And he said, oh, my people, they worship a certain snake. And the snake has three stripes on its head. So every one of the children in that tribe, they are marked with those three marks from the head of the snake. Now, if you are born again, will you say that because our culture does it, I will do it? So my my answer is, yes, some things in our culture are good. But not everything in our culture should be taken when you are born again. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Apostle. Okay. So, Add my five things. Okay. okay. I, I, I just wanted to add the dimension of the Romans 14. Uh, right. It says that if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, then you are no longer acting in love. And so you should not, <clears throat> by eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. We, we argue that, uh, uh, judge not, Matthew 7, 1, so that you not be judged. That is, for, especially for Christians, especially for pastors' children, especially for, uh, for, for the body of Christ. If society has a problem with creating notes, 
you should ask yourself, how do people look at people who pierce their nose? And even if you believe that there is no Bible verse that says don't pierce your nose, but you are a Christian and people see you and expect that you will not do what you are doing. I mean, when you read all the way to verse 21, it says don't do it because of the other people's sake. So I just wanted to quickly add that dimension that uh, it may not be specifically in the Bible that it's a thing, uh, but if society frowns upon it, society associates uh, uh, certain category of people with that lifestyle, which is which may not glorify God, all things are, are permissible, but not all things edify. Those are my five things, Pastor. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Pastor Selassie. Uh, we are taking the last set of questions from the chat box, and then we are done. One says that, how do we have time for leisure activities? Are they really important in the Christian home? Uh, another says that, please, based on Numbers 30, can a husband nullify the wife's vow to God in our present day? If yes, won't the man be guilty before God? Number three, is it wrong for a man of God not to speak in tongues? Not to speak in tongues. And finally, how do you balance devotions, entertainment, social lifestyle in the home as a Christian leader? Yes, Numbers 30 definitely works in the New Testament context also. You can break your wife's vows and, and curses and those things that you can do it. And the result is you are the husband and you are the head of the home. Therefore, the Bible empowers you the day you hear of a vow your wife has taken when she was young that for her she will have only one child or that uh, for her she wants to die when she is 50. You can't hear it and keep quiet. You must break the vow immediately you hear it. You will not be guilty before God. It is your divine right as a husband. A second question I want to answer is the, the issue of leisure and entertainment as a Christian. Uh, the question has become very important in these days because of the way entertainment is going. Many of our entertainments and leisure lead to sin. So because of that, the average Christian doesn't find himself. I mean, if you want to go with your, your friends to a pub, by the time you get there, you find out that they are not serving Coca-Cola and malt. They are serving schnapps. They are serving <laughs> alcohol. And you went out for leisure. You came back drunk. Next time, you don't want to go out like that. You see? 
So the entertainments which are coming right now, make it such that before you know what, you are into pornography. Before you know what, you have been trapped into some financial, you know, something. It's some lottery uh, box and so on. I believe that even though we don't have a lot of them, there are Christian games we can play using Bible verses and things which are spiritual. So that at the end of the day, we don't end up in a valley of sin, but edification comes. I can tell you many occasions, even not too long ago, we went and lodged in a hotel in Togo. And I forgot to pray and plead the blood of Jesus over the bed. And I just slept. Immediately I slept, I saw myself involved in, in sex. And I got up at once. Because they were using these beds, people ran away from their husbands and wives and come and flat in these hotels. The beds themselves, if you go there and you don't soak them in the blood of Jesus, you will pick a demon just now. This is, this is the type of thing I'm talking about. So there is nothing wrong with Christians having leisure. God rested. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. God rested. And there must be fun, godly fun. Because Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice in the Lord, all his people. Again, I say rejoice. So, we Christians have joy, real joy. And when we talk about leisure, it should not be sinful leisure. We can have that. We can rejoice with one another. We can fellowship. We can do things which make us, you know, appreciate life and go on trips and uh, take leisure, take holiday, travel, and what have you. Once you make sure that you don't come back sinning, that's it. Is it wrong for a man of God not to speak in tongues? Uh, No. I think that we need to study the scriptures. And, you know, even though it is a gift, and we differentiate between the prayer language and the different kinds of tongues, tongues of angels and of men, I believe that for the average Christian in my personal encounter, if you take time to explain the gifts to people, uh, it is easy to receive the gift of tongues on the whole. So I don't blame people for not speaking in tongues. We only help them to speak in tongues. I, I know people who for 40 years of their Christian life were not speaking in tongues. 
But when we explained some of these things to them and prayed for them, they started speaking in tongues. It happens. So you can't blame the man of God that because he doesn't speak in tongues, he is not correct. Thank you, Apostle, for the time today also and for the explanation. Today we have been talking to this important issue of establishing the kingdom of God in our Christian homes. It's my prayer and belief that we have learned something to go and implement and add up to what we are already doing in our homes. Follow JFK Men's Ministries on Facebook and YouTube and invite others to listen to his podcast. You can also access some of JFK Mensa's books and keep up with his ministry at www.jfkmensaministries.org. God bless you.